Amen. Well, this morning we are following up uh, from last week as we looked at John chapter 14 and be- began to look at this invitation of Jesus to something deeper, to something more in our relationship with him. And all of this is leading up to the final Sunday of this month, which is Pentecost Sunday, and celebrating the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus is, in John 14, is preparing his disciples for that day. And uh, we come with eager hearts, uh, longing for a fresh Pentecost in our own lives. But this morning we're going to look at John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21, as Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit as the advocate. And the word advocate can have a variety of nuances and maybe a variety of reactions within us. And uh, maybe we think of some attorneys on commercials who promise to be your advocate, to stand by your side, to fight for you. But an advocate is simply one who speaks up for somebody who is in favor of or a supporter of one. And we're going to be introduced to that role of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing Jesus points out in verse 15 of this passage is the fruit of love. The fruit of love. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, the word here for keep is the word to attend to carefully, to observe them. And so Jesus says, if you love me, you are going to be careful to do the things that I've told you to do, to obey the commandments that I've given you. In fact, it is stated in the imperative. It's a command to keep his commandments. What does it mean to keep his commandments if we love him? It's an obedience motivated by love. It's not because you just dig down deep and do these things that you're proving my love, rather, or to earn his love, rather it's an overflow of that love. It's a fruit of the love that we have in our hearts for Jesus. And as maybe you found out over the course of life that love isn't always based on feelings, that feelings come and go, that sometimes love is a choice. And that's the heart of the agape love that we're introduced to in scripture, that love is ultimately a choice that I'm going to love you no matter what. And so there are days as we follow Jesus when we feel like obeying him. And it's easy to do that. And there are days when we don't feel like it. But out of the overflow of love, the choice to love Jesus is to obey him in the days we feel like it and the days we don't feel like it. But I think it's important how Jesus phrases this, that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. It's a love-based obedience, an overflow of love, because sometimes we can make it into obey me or else. Obey me or else there will be wrath. Obey me or else there will be consequences. Now, certainly we see a lot of that played out in the Old Covenant. But why is it important in the New Covenant that there's this shift of focus, that it's a love-based obedience? Well, think about if you're in a marriage. And you live under this umbrella of, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, my spouse will be angry with me. What's that marriage like? Or maybe you grew up in a household where it was a parent saying, you will do this or else. Now, some some might say, well, that's sometimes as a parent, you have to do that. 
But what difference does it make when you live in a relationship where it's you walk this fine line or else there will be dire consequences as opposed to out of my love for this person, I want to do that which is pleasing to them. Because I love my spouse, there are things that I want to do that they like. There's things I want to do that bless them, that please them, that, that honor them, that show that I love them. Jesus says, if you love me, that expression of love, that overflow of love is going to spill out in a desire to do the things that please the one that you love. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And that seems opposite because we're, we're used to some of the preachers that we know about from the first and second great awakenings that were kind of that hellfire of obey God or else. He will send down fire and rain and hail and wrath upon you. But yet Romans 2 says it's actually the kindness of God. Because if there's a God who, as I walk with him, if I step out of line, if I think that coming back to him is going to mean a swift and severe beating, I mean, if you had a parent who beat you pretty hard and you did something that they didn't like, didn't you do everything in your power to cover that up and to keep that a secret so that they don't find out, so that they don't beat you? But what do we see in the lesson of the prodigal son? We see a father who's like, all I care about is that you're back to me. I don't care how much you insulted me. I don't care how much you rebelled. What matters now is you're back here with me. That there is a God who actually loves you so much that when you sin, he's not primarily concerned about, I'm going to teach them a lesson, as he is with, I just want you back here in right relationship with me. You can be open. You can be honest about the things that you did because I know what you did. I just want you back here in right relationship. And so if we're looking at a love-based obedience as an overflow of love, then we begin to look at some things differently, that if, if you know of somebody who follows Jesus who's living in perpetual sin, what we're ultimately looking at is a love problem. And we can tell them, you know, you've got to repent, got to repent, got to repent. And yeah, there's a place where we need to do that, to speak the truth in love. But that's not going to change a heart issue. That the, the problem of the perpetual sin is there's clearly a problem in their relationship with Christ. There's something wrong in their love connection with Jesus that needs to be addressed. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Also raises a tough question. Jesus, how? I'm not able. I don't have the willpower. I don't have the strength to do this. It's easy for us to look at the Old Testament and all the laws of the Old Testament and God saying, here's all the things you need to do to be in right relationship with me. And to some extent, that's what's happening. But on the other hand, it's also God's way of saying, here's what it means to live a perfect life. I'm giving you this to show you you can't do this. It's like, what do you mean? In those laws he gave, he built this entire sacrificial system. 
Not if you don't live up to this, like you're not going to live up to it, so here's what you do when you don't live up to this. How do we do this? How do we live this life that's pleasing to Christ? How do we live this life of obedience? That's where he turns in the second point, starting at verse 16, of the abiding presence. The abiding presence. Where it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will ask the Father, and he will give you two key words there, another helper, another helper. Again, the word another, we've looked at this passage before, the Greek word used there means another of the same sort. There was, there's another word for another that means another of a different kind. But the word used here is another of the same sort. Again, the illustration I go back to is if I go to a restaurant, hopefully, hopefully they have Dr. Pepper. Because sometimes they like to play sneaky and we don't have Dr. Pepper. Is Pepsi okay? No. Pepsi's never okay. Especially not as a substitute for Dr. Pepper. But I digress. If I get a Dr. Pepper and eventually that glass empties, the waiter or waitress will come and say, would you like another? What I'm expecting is another of the same kind. Don't pull a trick on me and bring me back a Pepsi. That's another of a different kind. Another of the same kind is that you refill my Dr. Pepper so that the person at the next table looks over and as far as they know, that's the original glass because it's exactly like the one I had before. There's no difference between the two. This is what Jesus is communicating. He's not saying, when I leave here, I'm going to send another of a different kind to you so that the Holy Spirit who's going to come is completely different. It, Jesus could have said, you know, I've been loving and kind and gentle and a, a perfect gentleman around you, but I'm going to send this other part of the Trinity who's a wild frat boy, and he is going to wreak havoc everywhere. No, he says, I'm going to send you another of the same kind, another exactly like me. Because the Holy Spirit is the same as I am, and I am the same as my Father, and the Father is the same as the Spirit, even though we're three distinct individuals, we are all the same God. I'm giving you another helper. The word is paraclete, one who comes alongside of you. One who is going to continue to do, again, he says, another helper. In other words, I've been your helper. I've been your paraclete. But I'm going to send the Spirit to now be your paraclete, your helper, your advocate, so that the Holy Spirit continues in the believer what Jesus had been doing with the disciples. But not only that, he says, even the Spirit of truth, which is basically, it's, the Greek connection there is just a way of saying, which is the spirit of truth? Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Will be in you. Now, again, this is revolutionary because in the old covenant, you don't see the Holy Spirit come into a person. The Holy Spirit comes upon a king 
The Holy Spirit comes upon a priest. The Holy Spirit comes upon a judge. But Jesus introducing this completely revolutionary relationship with the Holy Spirit. But not only will the Spirit be in us, he also adds this dimension in verse 16, that he will be with you forever. Again, as we see in David's prayer of confession, that having sinned with Bathsheba, he pleads God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, but if you're disobedient, the Holy Spirit would be withdrawn from you. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to come dwell in you, not just be upon you, but dwell in you, and he will be there forever. He will never be taken away from you. He will never withdraw from you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. It's a passive command. So there's two things in there. First of all, you're not filling yourself. You're allowing the Spirit to fill you. But it's also a command, which means it's not automatic. Just because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, it doesn't mean we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't command believers, hey, you guys got to be filled with the Spirit. It's a constant surrendering to the Spirit to fill us. It's not automatic. Just because we're Christians for so long, it doesn't mean that we're just on autopilot filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a continuation. The, the command of the verb here is continue to be filled. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Keep on surrendering to the filling presence of the Spirit. And then 2 Peter 1.3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper, another paraclete, another advocate. He's going to dwell in you, be with you forever. If you keep on being filled with this paraclete, with this spirit, with this helper, in the spirit, you will find everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need to obey, everything you need to live of a victorious Christian life, I've given you. It's available to you question is, will we surrender to the filling of the Spirit, the work of that abiding presence? And if we do so, we come to the last thing, which is the manifest presence. The manifest presence, starting at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. First of all, notice in verse 18, where it says, I will not leave you as, orf as orphans, I will come to you. And again, this connection among the Trinity of Jesus saying, I'm sending someone else. I'm sending the Spirit to come and dwell in you. But at the same time, Jesus says, in sending the Spirit to dwell in you, I'm coming to live and dwell in you. How does that work with the Trinity? I don't fully understand. But Jesus promised it's going to be me, the Spirit of Christ, who comes to dwell within us. But then he makes this astounding connection in verse 20. 
In that day you will know that I am in my Father. Okay, Jesus is in the Father. You are in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. Notice the, the connection of this relationship. Jesus says, I am hidden in my Father. You are hidden in me, and I am hidden in you. So we are hidden in the presence of the Father. I don't know how you get closer than that. Our standing with God is that we are hidden with Christ in God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Excuse me. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your relationship with Christ is secure because of the Holy Spirit in you. That's why the Holy Spirit is a seal, a seal of the covenant of your salvation. Your standing in Christ, in the Father, will never change because of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Now again, does that mean that you always experience that kind of closeness? No, but that's why he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Manifest myself to him. Literally, I will show myself to you. I will give proof of myself to you. Are we living a life that experiences the manifest presence of Christ? Where it goes beyond being a theological reality to a living experience. Where you know that Christ is real. That Christ is alive. Not because you have a list of scientific proofs for it. I don't have a list of scientific proofs that I love Julie and my kids. How do you give scientific proof of that? But I know that I love them. I know that Christ is real. I know that Christ is alive because he proves himself to me. He makes himself known to me. Do we live in that reality? Where the presence of Christ is as real to you as the chair that you're sitting in. The air that you're breathing. Maybe the person sitting with you. Is Christ that real to you? Again, this invitation to more. This invitation to something deeper. The key to it. The hinge upon the whole thing is the Holy Spirit. Not you working harder, not you trying harder, but you surrendering more. Each of us surrendering more to the work of the Holy Spirit, drawing us closer and closer in intimacy with Christ, making our relationship with Christ more and more real with each day. I pray that we would accept that invitation to that something more, that something deeper, that something more real, that something more life-changing than we've experienced so far. The advocate, the other helper that Jesus sent, 
who now dwells in you if you've trusted in Christ by faith. That spirit in you who's given you everything you need for life and godliness. That spirit in you who longs to fill you to overflowing. That spirit who dwells in you who desires to make Christ real in your life. Again, that invitation stands to say yes to something more, yes to something deeper in our relationship with Christ. And I pray that our answer would be a resounding, yes, Lord, that is what I long for. Fill me afresh with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit.